You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to the Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader. I'll be your host today. And with me is Colin Campbell. And joining us uh, for some of the later segments of the program, we have Lynn Bonner, Will Doran, and Craig Jarvis. Uh, The big news this week was uh, conventions. The Republican National Convention is in the books. The Democratic National Convention is about to start. And uh, Colin Campbell is uh, the News Observer's uh, man on the ground for both of them, uh, which has entailed some... um, some interesting logistics. Uh, have you uh, slept at all uh, since uh, since coming back from Cleveland and getting ready to go to Philadelphia? Well, I got a little bit of a nap in this morning. I made the mistake of booking a 5.45 a.m. flight out of Cleveland. Uh, and, of course, the airport there uh, this morning was uh, was quite a mess uh, with uh, a lot of journalists and uh, delegates and others uh, trying to, to book it out of town and, and get ready to, to go to Philadelphia. Uh, so that was uh, fun and um I'm mostly rested from that, but hopefully the weekend will will give me the energy to to do this all again in in Philadelphia next week. Well, you covered a lot of ground there. Uh, what what was the atmosphere like, uh, both inside and and uh, outside? It seems like the the protest that we thought, or at least I thought, might be. Uh, a big part of the story kind of fizzled, right? Yeah, that was uh, interesting. I felt like there was more fireworks uh, within the the GOP than than among the people who uh, hate what the GOP stands for and were were protesting outside. Um, uh, you know, the the police were there in in massive full force. They had officers from all over the country uh, participating in, in helping out the Secret Service and the Cleveland Police Department. Uh, and and probably at any given time, there were anywhere between fifty and hundred police officers on the main square where the protests were taking place. Um, but most of the days when I walked by the protest, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, interesting action. To me, it kind of uh, reminded me more of uh, you know a, a, a typical day in, in Asheville or something where you've got uh, small groups of people uh, promoting any of a number of kind of out there, sometimes wacky causes, uh, but not a whole lot of you know cohesive, everybody's on the same message, a ton of people are, are there sort of thing. It, it didn't really pan out. Um, in that sense. With a, with a couple of exceptions, there was one day where I think there were a couple dozen arrests uh, over uh, an incident in which some guy tried to light a flag on fire, but ended up apparently lighting himself on fire in the process. Um, I guess if you want to burn a flag at a, a massive protest rally, you ought to practice at home first or something so you have good fire safety or something. I don't know, but that would seem to be the, the most interesting highlight of the protest for the week. But most of the time, it, it felt to me like it was, you know... Uh, not even as well organized as, say, a Moral Monday protest here in Raleigh, which was was surprising to me because I was expecting a lot more from the the coverage that I heard. What kind of causes were being uh, promoted? You saw Vermin Supreme out there. Yeah, Vermin Supreme, the perennial uh, presidential candidate who's uh, best known for uh, wearing a rubber boot on his head. He was he was out there uh, wearing the rubber boot despite the the heat in uh, in Cleveland in the the main square. Uh, I saw somebody who was protesting. 
something to do with trans fats. He seemed to be off by himself. Uh, there were the more organized groups seemed to be uh, more Black Lives Matter oriented. There were a number of pro-Trump folks that were out there in the, the plaza. And there were occasions where uh, there'd be a shouting match between some of the pro-Trump people and the anti-Trump people. And there would the, the police would sort of get shoulder to shoulder in a long line to separate the two so that there weren't any sort of uh, fights or scuffles breaking out. Uh, so that was interesting. And then we had a couple of uh, sort of far white right wing groups. I think there were some uh, white supremacists out there. There was a group that uh, was was kind of virulently against Muslims, um, but none of them had huge numbers that, that I saw as I was walking through the square. Uh, so no chaos in the streets uh, and uh, probably uh, too much to say chaos uh, on the convention floor. It was it was not a, uh, a brokered convention or any of the things that yeah, people were talking about. But more chaotic than on. your but, previous convention, right, I say. Right, right. But, but, but more, yeah, more, certainly not as unified as, uh, as, as, and scripted as your typical uh, convention. So, uh, um, what was sort of the, the, the headline moment uh, for you? Uh, yeah, well, the interesting, most interesting moment to me came, I guess it was Monday afternoon when they were doing the uh, vote on the rules, which is normally just kind of a procedural thing. The rules are developed by a, a committee, and it's all very sort of arcane process, things that in any other year no one would care about. Uh, but this year there was the con- uh, an effort by some of the people who were uh, part of, I guess, the Never Trump movement to uh, change the rules, and they had a couple of things that they wanted to, to change in the rules, most notably. Notably, uh, an effort to unbind the delegates. Um, that was always considered to be a long shot. Um, but the idea was that if you forced the entire convention to vote on the rules in something other than a vote, voice vote, uh, to do a roll call vote where literally every one of the, I think, 2,000 plus delegates had to be uh, counted individually, um, then that would, if if nothing else, draw attention to the never Trump cause and highlight the uh, disunity in the party, but uh, potentially uh, cause the the rules folks to have to go back to the drawing board and change that. So there was this uh, sort of momentary outcry on the floor where an effort took place to get that roll call vote. Uh, and for a while, there was a lot of shouting. There was uh, a moment where every, uh, the chairman of the event left the podium and there was a jazz band that struck up or something to, to try to avoid uh, televising the, the shouting matches that were going on. And in the end, they just took a second voice vote. Uh, but then I caught up with our North Carolina delegation to see, and a number of the North Carolina folks, um, particularly the ones that supported Trump, felt like that was completely out of line, what what took place on the floor, and that the rule should have just been approved uh, as a sort of mere formality. But there were a few folks, including uh, one of the folks I talked to, uh, Daniel Rufty from down in Charlotte, who's been a pretty strong Cruz supporter, uh, said he was among the people who voted to uh, vote against the rules. Uh, and he, he really felt strongly that uh, the delegates, in his mind, were there uh, to represent the people and should have the ability to sort of change their mind from uh, what the voters decided in the March primary. He said, you know, the circumstances have changed. Trump has said some things since March that, um, you know, people weren't necessarily expecting. Uh, and he felt like as a representative of the people, he should have the right to uh, vote for whoever he wants. Granted, he was bound to Cruz, so he was going to vote for Cruz no matter what the rules were. But he wanted others, including the Trump supporters, to to be able to switch their votes and potentially change the outcome. The Trump supporters, on the other hand, said, look, we're 
we're not here to, you know, have more influence than the rest of the people. We're here to proportionally represent however many voters each delegate uh, represents uh, to this state. So that, that to me was a, an interesting thing, and that whole disunity stuck around the rest of the week with, uh, you know, attempts by the, the Republican leadership to uh, pull potentially pull credentials for Bob Orr, the former uh, NC Supreme Court justice, who's a big Kasich supporter and has uh, spoken out pretty strongly against Trump. Uh, and there was also the folks who uh, lost their ride on the plane with uh, with Robin Hayes, the, the party chairman. So uh, lots of uh, fireworks uh, all yeah. surrounding this issue. Yeah, for people who, uh, who, who missed that story, everybody, of course, saw that uh, – um, Ted Cruz was was loudly uh, booed at the at the convention, but some some people may not have seen the the local uh, story the the following day, which was that uh, sort of the fallout in the North Carolina delegation from that uh, that tiff. Yeah, so that was the uh, two guys who were Cruz delegates and basically told the the party chairman, you know, we thought that gave us a pretty good speech. We weren't upset with his speech, and uh, his response was uh, essentially, "Get off my plane." He's was apparently had offered them a ride to and from on his private plane, uh, and he basically told them that if they're not uh, willing to sort of. Uh, to the party line on this one, then they could find their own way home. So they, I think, immediately uh, left the proceedings, didn't stick around for Donald Trump's speech, and, and rode home with somebody else. A, a fair number, I thought, of the uh, particularly the uh, the Cruz folks who really weren't on board with uh, with Trump uh, were gone by Thursday night when Trump gave his big acceptance speech. Um, and then the, the seats on the floor for North Carolina were filled by some of the alternate delegates who would have otherwise been been up in the bleachers and out of the fun part. Well, you had a front seat to some pretty. Uh, some pretty crazy happenings. Uh, you you saw, um, uh, I take it, saw Melania Trump give her speech, which was later uh, picked apart and, and found to have some uh, lifted passages in uh, something that was uh, later blamed on a staffer. Uh, you saw, uh, as we said, Ted Cruz um, get booed. Uh, I was struck by the just the disorganization. It, it's just from from many miles away. It seemed like it was just such a disorganized uh, a convention. Like, why did they? Uh, why did the organizers allow uh, some of this t- to happen? Speeches to go uh, seemingly unvetted, and uh, uh, in, in Cruz's case, I guess they approved his his speech, yeah. even though it it was calculated to uh, be a, a, a speech against the nominee that this convention was was like. Yeah, well, and I think that uh, the Trump people figured that this would be to Cruz's disadvantage to have that, and I think they. Uh, they sort of choreographed a little bit of that. Uh, Donald Trump himself arrived uh, in the the arena around the time Cruz was wrapping up his speech, um, which diverted a lot of attention. We, I was up in the media stands, and I couldn't quite tell because I uh, did not bring my opera glasses uh, what had diverted most of the delegates' attention on the floor uh, away from the, the final moments of Cruz's speech. And it turned out that it was Trump was in the building, uh, essentially to say, well, you know, if, if you're going to talk that way, then I'm just going to c- come and upstage you. Um, and then as Cruz is, is leaving, the, the booze begin um, and, and really was almost deafening from where I was sitting. It was uh, bizarre. And I, I don't know if I've ever heard booing on that level with that many people. So much so that it was kind of uh, – I was sitting there with uh, with Taylor Batten, who's one of the opinion writers for the Charlotte Observer, and we were turning, turning to each other thinking – is this booing or is because it, it was mixed? Was there in, some cheering? There in was there? some yeah, cheering in yeah, there, yeah. and so it's hard, you know, sitting way up where we were in the, in the press stands to sort of establish what sounds are coming from where, and, and you know, booze on that magnitude, and it sounds since almost sound like really bizarre cheers, but you kind of have to, 
you know, in your mind separate, like, oh, that's that's not what the rest of the cheering is sounded cruise like here. Cruise was what a lot of people were saying. Oh, yeah. they're saying cruise. Yeah, so I was, we're sitting there looking at Twitter to try to see what, what other journalists who are perhaps closer to the floor are saying about uh, what was going on in that moment. Um, and of course, you could you could see his speech, right? Uh, couldn't you see? The, yeah. So where uh, I was sitting, yeah. I could see the teleprompter. So it was fun to kind of see. And that was I noticed a number of journalists playing this game of trying to uh, read the teleprompter as the speech was going on, because then you could see where they jumped off the script. Um, and a lot of people, I, I wasn't in the room for for Trump's speech last night, but uh, I saw a lot of people doing that with him because with Trump, everyone always wants to know. You know, when is he reading from the teleprompter and when is he speaking off the cuff? And you can usually tell because teleprompter Trump is, is a far different experience uh, in terms of speaking style than the, you know, freewheeling, tangential Trump that you get at, at a rally where he's not using a script or a teleprompter. Yeah, and this is this was definitely teleprompter Trump, but uh, in his final, in his uh, acceptance speech, uh, he's going to be in North Carolina on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, in Winston-Salem on Monday and in Charlotte on Tuesday. Um, Hillary Clinton will also be in, in North Carolina on Tuesday. Uh, on Monday, excuse me, in Charlotte. Uh, so do you expect, uh, is this new Trump? Uh, will we be seeing uh, a, a totally uh, different kind of an act now that we're into the, the general election? Was that speech uh, uh, an indication of that? You know, it's it's interesting. He's he's kind of bounced back and forth over the course of this campaign between uh, what I like to call rally Trump and teleprompter Trump. Uh, teleprompter Trump shows up in, in some of the most pivotal moments where where the most attention is on him, where he's trying to convey some policy issues, uh, proposals that he wants to make. Um, and, and so it wasn't a surprise to me that he had the teleprompter going on, on Thursday night. Uh, but I have a hard time seeing him changing his rally style um, because a lot of what feeds the energy of the crowds at these uh, large-scale rallies that Trump has been doing every week since he uh, essentially since he launched his candidacy uh, is the fact that you really don't know what he's going to say next. He may go on any of a number of tangents about uh, the day's news or uh, attacking Hillary Clinton or various other folks over whatever the issue may be. Uh, and I think you're still going to see some of that um, in, in particularly the rallies and probably the, the one here next week. He's, he's already uh, back to ad-libbing with some of his media interviews as of, of today, Friday. Um, so I, I, I think while some of the Republican establishment would love to see him stick to the, to the script, um, Trump's most loyal fans and, and Trump himself uh, just prefer to, to have more fun with it and, and do it off the cuff. Now, the, the convention also adopted a platform. These are usually uh, talked about a lot during the convention and then sort of forgotten about. But there were some interesting things in there. You had a, a very interesting story about the, the platform and the, the North Carolina connection there. Yeah, so Virginia Fox, uh, the congresswoman from up in uh, the mountains area of North Carolina, uh, was one of the co-chairs for the platform writing committee. She basically represented uh, the, the U.S. House of Representatives Republican wing uh, in that. Um, and so I talked to her a little about some of the North Carolina uh, aspects of it. One being, um, you know, they, they sort of touched on the, the HB2 issue uh, without really necessarily voicing support for House Bill 2 itself, uh, but going uh, fairly forcefully against uh, President Obama's edict about uh, transgender bathroom use uh, in, in schools and, and other facilities. Um, so it's not really a surprise that that was 
in there. I, I asked Virginia Fox about why why not go further and say, you know, we as a party are behind things like House Bill 2 and, and encourage other states to, to do similar things. And she said the platform in her mind is really focused on the federal level, that uh, you don't want to go down to the state's levels. Uh, and she also, uh, sort of interestingly enough, um, said that the platform committee made a point not to essentially rebuff uh, efforts by I think they had one uh, openly gay uh, committee member who wanted to sort of soften the language about LGBT issues uh, in the hopes of attracting more of those folks, uh, and that was sort of beaten back. And Virginia Fox's argument, you hear this from a lot of Republicans, is that they they didn't want to single out people by label, say that's what the Democrats do. We want to just be unified and, and do things that benefit everybody and, and not try to focus on specific labels, which to me was interesting given Trump's speech last night where he specifically referenced LGBTQ. Uh, he made several appeals to uh, black voters, Latino voters, and, and I had to help but wonder, you know, Virginia Fox is out there listening, thinking, uh, I wish you, you weren't so group specific about about your your appeals and claims, sure. Identity politics. Uh, well, among as if all this uh, uh, sort of drama at the convention weren't enough, uh, one of our uh, local politicians actually made news at conven- at the convention. You don't usually see anybody making uh, a whole lot of news uh, at, at conventions, but this had a lot of it. And uh, uh, so, what did Richard Burr say? Yeah, so Richard Burr was uh, there uh, making sort of a one day visit to the delegation. Uh, he sort of downplayed the fact that he wasn't sticking around or making a speech or being active in the the more national aspect of it. But he did come by the, the delegation's hotel out in the suburbs where we were staying um, and, and speak to them. Uh, during that time, he, he made sort of a, a shocking announcement that he uh, is not going to run again for office after this year. So if he's reelected, he will serve the full six years term, uh, but he won't run again in 2022. And I guess if he loses this year, that that's it for him. He's not going to run for anything else. He's not going to run for Senate again, um, which was, was interesting because you almost never hear uh, somebody who's in a, as, particularly as a heated a race as, as Richard Burr is running for, for re-election to the Senate to talk about their plans uh, that far out. Uh, he said it was mainly because he wanted to appease his wife, who would like to see that, I think in his words, that there's light at the end of the tunnel that's not a train after uh, Richard Burr spending upwards of 20 years in, in Washington in Congress, uh, either in the House or the Senate. Um, but from a political standpoint, uh, I think he's going to get some flack from his opponent, Deborah Ross, over that. They're already She's already making the claim that uh, he's going to go back on that promise, although there's not really anything evidence to support that he, he wouldn't uh, go with that particular promise. Um, and uh, on the other hand, I think it makes him look like maybe perhaps less of a career politician, but it's really interesting to see how he's uh, – what what the calculation is there because, uh, like you said, there's not a whole lot of news dropped in these conventions. We're mostly writing about uh, speeches and party unity and that sort of thing. So, you know, when, when Richard Burr said this, there was a fair amount of North Carolina media in the room. Uh, there was some national media there as well. Uh, this, this went pretty well noticed uh, because – most of us were, were craving bigger stories, and, and that was one that, that showed up and offered a, a little surprise and, and drama to, uh, to the convention stage. Well, uh, you recorded some audio with uh, one of your more interesting interviews uh, from the convention, which was with uh, Ada Fisher, uh, one of the delegates who was in the spotlight partly because she was uh, among the, the group that uh, um, spoke about uh, North Carolina casting its votes for Trump, right? Uh, yeah, so she she was the one of the three speakers that listed off the vote tallies and said a few things about North Carolina. And, and Fisher's interesting because she's uh, she's black, she's female, she's Jewish, 
She was a single mom, and she's been active in the Republican Party for decades, uh, run for office several times, always been involved in the sort of the internal workings of the party. She serves as the RNC committee woman, so one of three people that represent uh, North Carolina and the Republican uh, National Committee, and, and like you said, was one of the first people to go for Trump. So I talked to her a little bit about uh, what attracts her to Trump and uh, sort of what what needs to happen in order to to get more African Americans on board uh, Trump's candidacy. He has pretty dismally low approval ratings uh, with with black voters. Um, and so I, I talked to her a little bit about that. And we can take a listen to uh, a couple clips for, from that interview. All right. Let's listen to that. And then we'll be back uh, to talk with the whole gang uh, about uh, the big news about HB2 this week. Uh, stay with us. That there were 109 black Republicans at the second constitutional convention in the state of North Carolina. And one man struck me interesting. His name was Wilson Carey. And what Wilson Carey said is that we should not allow immigrants in this country because they were displacing black workers. Now, this is 1868. Trump comes and he says the same thing that I have observed. And I said, we need somebody who realizes these problems have been in transit for years and is willing to take them on. We may not get the best solution, but we'll get somebody to pay attention to those problems. So I like Donald Trump then. He's a very personal guy. I think I met him about three or four times. He came to North Carolina in the last election and stumped hard from Mitt Romney and all of the Republican candidates, and he came this time. When I met him the first time about three or four years ago, I said, Mr. Trump, you ought to be president of the United States. So I laugh now that one of the things I saw in him is there. The other thing I liked about Trump is he's a businessman. Regardless of what you think about his bankruptcies, et cetera, he operated within the framework of the law. And Calvin Coolidge, I believe, said, the business of America is business. You can't provide jobs for the future. You can't divide, provide economic growth for communities if you don't have businesses. And I think he understands that. And he can come up with some innovative solutions to the dilemma of jobs that we have in the future. We need to have better messaging. You can't be so curt as to piss everybody off. You've got to say things to, oh yeah, I understand that. That affects me. One of the things that I introduced in my book, uh, Common Sense, Conservative Prescription Solutions for What Ails Us, was the concept. I spent a lot of time in barbershops and beauty shops, and I sit down and listen to people. And they said, Fisher, we don't like Republicans, but we'll let you in here. And I'm going, tell me why you don't like Republicans. And everything they say, I can refute. I'm probably the only Republican that has ever been invited to be the keynote speaker at the black elected officials of North Carolina's luncheon. And I stood there for an hour and a half and took every question they threw at me. I got a standing ovation because what I realized is their perception of what's going on is not really what's going on. Welcome back to Domecast. The conventions dominated uh, the week in political news uh, for North Carolina, but uh, we also had a huge announcement uh, late this week. Uh, uh, Lynn, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with the NBA All-Star Game? And uh, we can go around and talk about uh, what we think the, the significance of this decision is. Sure. The uh, NBA announced that they were not going to hold the All-Star Game in Charlotte, pulling um, something, an event that was 
uh, supposedly going to bring $100 million to the city out because of House Bill 2. That started an immediate round of finger pointing over whose fault it was. Uh, And we heard everything from the governor to the attorney general to the Charlotte City Council. So we'll have many more rounds of this, I believe, um, in the upcoming elections. Uh, And this decision sort of uh, makes the HB2 uh, legislation sort of uh, tease it up as a prime um, issue for the gubernatorial campaigns. Does this uh, mean trouble for Governor McCrory in Mecklenburg County? You know, uh, possibly. Um, he, um, I think in his first campaign for governor, he did not win Charlotte or did not win Mecklenburg. Um so between this and some possibly some lingering discontent over tolls, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, and Charlotte having become um, very democratic and really dominating uh, the uh, the elections, uh, how, swing of Mecklenburg County, it's possible that he could lose Mecklenburg. Sure. And of course, it's not just uh, the Charlotte area that that will feel this. There'll be uh, probably some statewide effects on tourism and and everything else. But uh, uh, Will, you've looked uh, in the past at at economic impact of HB2, but I would think this would be the the biggest blow to the state uh, so far economically. For sure. Yeah, this is definitely the big one. Um, You know, there were some other you know, you know, some individual jobs issues and things like that. But, uh, you know, in terms of just a, you know, a single, you know, one-off kind of event, uh, this was definitely big. There have been some instances in the past, you know, where the NBA has said that, oh, you know, these cities are going to earn $100 million or $150 million, $200 million, and then it's turned out that, you know, that was... Uh, Far too optimistic, yeah, and um, not exactly accurate after the fact. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the, now in terms of Charlotte, that can be nothing but speculation because we'll never know. Um, but, you know, so maybe take the number with a you know grain of salt. But at, you, any way you slice it, it, it was definitely going to be big uh, in terms of dollars. Yeah, and... And, uh, Colin, uh, the governor today uh, reacted... Uh, uh, calling it uh, PCBS. Yeah, uh, a strong uh, word from the governor on an NPR program, I think. What kind of reactions are we are we hearing or are we likely to, to Yeah, to Well, hear? it's interesting because uh, the governor has hit back on this and certainly he's uh, made an issue of, you know, it being uh, not his fault. He's, he's blamed a lot of people. He's blamed the media. He's blamed the Charlotte City Council for initially passing the non-discrimination ordinance uh, that launched the whole controversy. Um, and his people have also been willing to go straight for the NBA on this. Um, they're criticizing them for being political. They have noted a connection that apparently some attorney from the NBA also happens to have been an attorney working for Bill Clinton at some point in the past, uh, as if to sort of suggest uh, to try to connect dots that probably are dots that may not be there uh, between uh, this NBA decision and Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, to try to suggest that the NBA is sort of this like uh, political group trying to have an influence in, in North Carolina's uh, election process. I don't know whether that will 
sell with voters because I don't know that uh, it's going to be very easy to cast the NBA as some sort of shadowy political group that's conspiring against a sitting Republican governor. But that may be the the effort that uh, that gets made in there. Uh, the folks who want to blame the Charlotte City Council, I think, will have a little more fodder because uh, there was a letter I think that was reported on about the Charlotte Hornets co-owner uh, writing his uh, concerns about how awful the loss of the All-Star game is going to be uh, and, and saying that he, he blames the mayor of Charlotte for uh, sort of opening the can of worms uh, on, on this issue by passing that non-discrimination ordinance and, and calling for some of the members of the Charlotte City Council to get voted out of office. So there'll definitely be a ton of finger pointing uh, going forward on this, and, and we'll see uh, what actually resonates with the voters in terms of, uh, of who gets the blame and, and who takes the uh, PR hit for, uh, for what happened with the All-Star game. All right. Uh, Will, do you uh, you had a number of uh, fact checks and stories uh, looking at uh, politicians' claims and some uh, even maybe wouldn't even call them politicians, but uh, some some uh, people who don't usually get a chance to be in the spotlight. The, the North Carolina delegation had its uh, the same kind of a roll call appearance that all the states have bragging about uh, uh, what's so special about all their uh, their state and uh, North Carolina uh, uh, had a, a claim uh, to make. Um, what did uh, what did what did the delegation say about uh, what's the greatest or best of in North Carolina? Sure thing. Yeah, the roll calls are always fun because the states get to brag a little bit about what makes them the most unique. Um, I think uh, Kansas and Missouri got into a fight over who was bigger fans of the Kansas City Royals and. Uh, you know, Connecticut was talking about how they make Pez, and the Nevada people actually got their own state capital wrong, which made everybody laugh for a while. Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, th- these are interesting things. And um, and uh, actually, uh, Slate, uh, the the website, ranked all of them in, uh, out of the 56 states and territories. And North Carolina came in 19th, so we were thought of pretty Respectable. well. Respectable, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but uh, so I was looking forward to see what they, you know, had to say about our state. And uh, they said that it is home to the world's largest military installations. And I said, that's interesting. Um, and I started looking into it. And it turns out that, you know, there's not really any way to, uh, you know, to FOIA Russia or North Korea um, <laughs> for that kind of comparison. So we narrowed it down and just said, okay, what about the largest U.S. installations? And as it turns out, um, Fort Bragg is the biggest of any branch. It's got uh, well over 50,000 uh, soldiers and sailors and all sorts of people, mo- mostly Army there. Um, and uh, Camp Lejeune is also up there in size. It's the uh, second biggest uh, Marine Corps base. It used to be the biggest, uh, but it's it's since fallen behind Pendleton in California. Um, we also have a couple Air Force bases and a Coast Guard base, but nothing that really uh, holds, a, holds a candle to, you know, some other installations. So uh, we gave that one a, a mostly true, um, basically on the strength of Fort Bragg, just kind of outshining everybody and Lejeune uh, having a respectable showing as well. Um, also had a couple other, uh, you know, things that we've looked into recently uh, for PolitiFact. Um, two things that actually we didn't end up uh, giving uh, uh, rulings on, but, you know, th- just that we kind of, uh, you know, nerded out on a little bit and went in and found some context. Um, uh, Paul Ryan was speaking to the North Carolina delegation, I believe, over breakfast one day at the convention and trying to... Um, you know, whip them up into shape to come out and support Donald Trump. And he said that, you know, 
look, Hillary is only going to be more of the same of Obama, who has given all of these, you know, executive orders, executive actions, new regulations. Um, and he said, Republican presidents have done it too. We're not trying to say they haven't, but, you know, he's really taken it to a whole new level. Um, and so I wanted to look into that. Has he taken it to a whole new level? And as it turns out, Obama has actually given fewer executive orders than any president since the 1800s. Um, obviously, there you know have been you know other things that president can do other than executive orders. There's you know different types of actions, but um, you know in terms of that, uh, he's he's been pretty low. But obviously, he has had some pretty controversial ones. You know, on immigration, on the ACA. Um, on gun control, things like that. Um, so if that's something that interests you, listeners, go check it out. <laughs> and you, in the course of doing that, there were some interesting uh, historical parallels. I didn't realize the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order, but I guess that that yeah. makes sense. And, and what there were some others. Uh, that darn Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one was. And um, actually when FDR um, sent all, uh, thousands of Japanese Americans into internment camps, that was an executive order. So it does show the, the sweeping power that the executive branch can have and, you know, enact massive policies, you know, by going around Congress. And, you know, there, there's definitely a, uh, a concern, you know, not just in the Republican Party, but among you know, plenty of people about the, the power of the executive branch. Um, and uh, one thing that actually interested me was, uh, and I didn't realize this, Harry Truman in the 50s tried to nationalize the steel industry. Um, kind of a, you know, a red move there by him, but the, the Supreme Court put a stop to that. <laughs> and you also uh, took took a look at uh, a Tom Tillis statement uh, dealing with whether Obama's gotten a fair shake from the Senate on judicial uh, uh, nominees. Right, right. Yeah, the uh, some other some other senators. Uh, Earlier this month, we're trying to advance a couple um, judicial nominations before they took a break until September. Um, and um, it's uh, worth noting that North Carolina actually has the longest uh, running vacancy in the country. The Eastern District, which runs from Raleigh to the coast, um, has been missing one of its judges for over a decade, since 2005. Um, and so... Uh, you know, for various political reasons that has gone unfilled. And, you know, when they tried to advance these, uh, Senator Tillis got up and said, no, this isn't really our job to do this anymore. We don't need to deal with these. We should be, you know, focusing on Zika, focusing on the military instead of judges. Um, and he, he made the claim that actually Obama has been treated more fairly than uh, George Bush was by the Senate. We didn't fact check that because that's kind of an opinion and that's not really our, our wheelhouse. But uh, I did want to at least kind of break down the numbers and let people decide for themselves. Um, and basically by the looks of it, um, there are quite a few vacancies under Obama, about twice as many uh, at this point as there were under Bush. Um, and you know, people can read into that what they will. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's really, it was just interesting to me to figure out and kind of learn about how politicized the whole judicial nominating process has gotten, even for district court judges who are, you know, just kind of workhorses. They're not setting precedent, you know, they're not issuing, you know, 
decisions that are going to affect other states, things like that. But even with them, it's gotten very political. Yeah, I, I, we knew that uh, the Supreme Court uh, justices were, uh, uh, those appointments were very political. And we knew that the Senate had basically said, we're not doing any more of those. It's time for, it's going to be up to the next president. But, you know, I, I didn't realize that at least for some senators, uh, they don't think they need to do any more uh, judicial appointments at all uh, until uh, the next president comes along. I, I guess the, the last year of a president's term, uh, uh, if they've reached the, their quota, that <laughs> yeah, the uh, the somewhat spurious argument is that because you know the the Senate has confirmed more judges for Obama than it did for Bush, that they're done and they don't have to do any more. But of course, there's been more vacancies under Obama and you know the. Constitution doesn't really set limits on, you know, how many you need to, you know, advise and consent on. It just says, do it. Do it. Yeah. So, Well, uh, thanks, Will. Um, and thanks to everybody. We'll be right back uh, with Headliner of the Week. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Headliner of the week, and we're back with Domecast and Headliner of the week. Uh, Craig, who's your Headliner of the week? Headliner of the week is Ken Rudo. He's a toxicologist with the state uh, health department. He gave a deposition uh, in a lawsuit involving the uh, that partly involves why the state issued a do not drink. Uh, notice to uh, people who live near coal ash plants, do not drink well water, and then rescinded it, which caused a lot of uh, uh, controversy. Uh, R- Rudo gave a, a deposition that uh, Duke Energy didn't like for a variety of reasons. And so uh, uh, he was, he's about the fourth one, uh, fourth deposition they've done, which, uh, which the Southern Environmental Law Center, who's involved in the lawsuit, has distributed in public in kind of a manipulation of the case uh, or manipulation of public sentiment. And uh, Duke Energy kind of said, well, this is, this is just too much. Dr. Rudo, uh, he, he's saying some damaging things. We don't know if he's qualified to say those things. And we think that uh, they've asked a judge to, uh, to, uh, to issue a protective order to stop, uh, stop the Southern Environmental Law Center from issuing, uh, from releasing these uh, depositions kind of piecemeal. All right. Ken Rudo, a key player in the coal ash debate. Uh, Colin, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with uh, Robin Hayes, the uh, North Carolina Republican Party uh, chairman who was uh, leading the uh, the delegation in Cleveland this week and uh, sort of had some, some interesting moments uh, with his support for Trump and his uh, barring of some of the uh, delegates, which we'll talk a little about um, elsewhere in the podcast. Um, but uh, certainly an interesting role for him. He's back in the, the spotlight after several years uh, out of politics, a former congressman uh, who came in to lead the party uh, in the wake of the Hassan Harnett uh, ouster uh, and scandal and has been trying to unite the party and, and unite them behind Trump, uh, but seems to have a little bit of trouble uh, doing so as he uh, makes some uh, perhaps not friends in uh, some of the people who are hesitant about Trump and, and the Cruz delegates. So I'm going with Robin Hayes. All right, Robin Hayes of Get Off My Plane uh, and Ken Ruda of uh, uh, the Coal Ash Debate. Will, who's your headliner? 
I'm going to go with uh, G.K. Butterfield, who is the head of the Congressional Black Congress. Um, the News Observer has a really interesting profile on him vis-a-vis uh, -vis our uh, McClatchy Washington Bureau and, you know, just talking about his role and, you know, trying to work with the Republican leadership on some issues, um, you know, social justice issues, gun control, immigration, things like that. Um, and I, just, I found it a very uh, fascinating story on him. So. Yeah, former uh, didn't realize he was a former uh, Supreme Court uh, yeah, justice. Former Supreme really? Court justice from yeah. the tiny town of Wilson, which you know, uh, you know, normally when you think of you know major congressional leaders, you would think you know they would be from somewhere like New York or L.A., not Wilson. But there you have it, yeah. <laughs> G.K. Butterfield. G.K. Butterfield of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, Robin Hayes, chairman of the state GOP, and Ken Rudo. Uh, Lynn, you're last up. Who's your headline? I'm going to pick two characters who are on the flip side of the Hayes story, uh, Ted Hicks and Rod Cheney, two cruise delegates who lost their ride home when Hayes said he wasn't going to take him back on his plane. Uh, I guess they flew to Cleveland with Hayes. Uh, when uh, they praised uh, Cruz's speech, um, Hayes said, uh, you're not flying back with me. So they took, uh, they took the longer way home. So I'll, uh, I'll pick those cruise delegates as my headliners. Well, I think we have to go with uh, uh, the the convention this week, and I'll pick uh, Robin Hayes uh, at the center of uh, a lot of North Carolina's role in the uh, convention and trying to uh, have some unity in what otherwise was a, a pretty uh, fractured uh, affair. Uh, so Robin Hayes is our Domecast headliner of the week this week. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, and join us next week when we'll uh, hear about the Democratic National Convention. And uh, Colin will be uh, reporting from there, too. So we'll, uh, we'll find out if they're any more united than, uh, than the Republicans were. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.